continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 85, Continuous Improvement and Coaching Leaders with Kyle Gillette. Kyle Gillette is a leadership coach. He coaches business leaders, but not all of his clients wear a white collar and work in an office. Kyle works with leaders and aspiring leaders from all walks of life, with a special focus on what we sometimes call blue-collar work. Kyle's career path has taken him from men's mentoring, to pet resorts, to HR, and to running a successful personal training business. In every role, helping people reach their human potential through the power of mindset has always been his path. Kyle's insights are valuable to all of us in the continuous improvement community. Kyle Gillette, welcome to the Ages of Lean. Hey, Bella. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Hey, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Tell us about yourself, Kyle. Yeah, uh, I grew up in California on an orange farm in the Central Valley. And my dad was an entrepreneur right when my sister was born. He chose to dive into that world and take all the risk that's associated with being an entrepreneur, you know, having zero and taking out a loan through through his dad and starting work in that arena, buying a, a piece of property. And then long story short, he ended up being very successful. And I ended up working on the farm from seventh grade through 12th grade, uh, then dove into a men's mentoring program and was mentored there for nine years and did my own mentoring of the guys in the program. Uh, they were 18, 25 year olds that were off track in life. And then met my wife in the midst of that, moved up to the Pacific Northwest and decided I wanted to have an impact in the Pacific Northwest like I was on the Central Coast of California and started doing coaching. So that's the very brief, tiny, little detailed version of how I got to where I am. There's a ton of other stories and details I could share, but that's that's how I got to where I am now. Oh, okay, so I have to say that you are the first farmer turned coach that I've had a chance to interview <laughs> on this podcast. So, so that's really that's really interesting. When you were growing up on an orange farm, working um, with I'm sure all different kinds of people, what did you learn from that? I learned work ethic. I'll tell you that much. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the Central Valley is 105 to 110 degrees in the summer. And wow. I, I do remember one morning, my dad was like, okay, we're going to go plant 40 acres of trees. And we didn't do all the work ourselves. There's a crew of people that did all the work, mm-hmm. right? But our job was to lay the trees out. And to we had already put out all the, all the uh, irrigation for it. And now it's time to put the trees out so the guys could come through and dig the holes manually, not a machine, but manually with little spade shovels and dig the holes. And he woke me up at five. And I remember getting to the field and it was 85 degrees and it was 530 in the morning. Oh my and, goodness! And then we spent from then until about, I think, 1130 or maybe even noon, just getting all the trees out from from bins in the back of a tractor and putting them down on the ground. And when it's 85 degrees out at eight five thirty in the morning, you know, it's going to be over 100 by the time you hit noon. And you just learn to deal with the heat and not complain about it. And so since that time, yes, I've complained about work, of course, because <laughs> I'm human, but I've also learned and observed people working in much harsher conditions than I did. 
and appreciate that so much more because I experienced it to a certain degree. And now I can really have a ton of respect for the people that are out in the weather, working their tails off on the roof of a house or on a telephone pole or whatever they're doing when it's freezing or a hundred and something degrees outside. And that taught me a ton about work ethic, taught me about the importance of getting up early and how getting up early changes your life flat out. It just changes your life. Um, so those are just two of the things that sprung to mind when you asked. Yeah, it's so easy for us to forget where stuff comes from, right? You know, the food on our table, you know, the roof, the roof over our heads, and and just uh, you know, so go on with our day. And and um, I'm sure it also cultivates a sense of gratitude in you too, as well for for the work that people put in so that we could live. Yeah, I you know, recently I'm getting closer to 40. <laughs> and as I've gotten older and older, I have more respect for history, for one thing, mm-hmm. but even more respect for the people that have allowed history to happen the way it is and given me the flexibility that I have in my life. I I'll see these folks that talk about they're gonna do, they're gonna work and they're gonna vacation for hours and hours or for days and days. And they do their work, and I'm sure they've worked hard to get to that point. But it's frustrating to me because there's hundreds of thousands of people in this country that are grinding away so that people can have a more luxurious life. They couldn't have that luxurious life if it weren't for the people that are building the homes, that are fixing the roads, that are in our way, or that are you know, mm. in the semi-trucks, that are backing up at a really inconvenient time for that other person. And so as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know what? No, I'll, I will get out of those people's way. I will thank them when I have the chance and I'm going to see and understand how hard they're working because I've experienced it to a little bit of a degree, but as I get older and have more and more conversations with them and coach them, it's just like, wow, this is hard work and they're the the backbone. And so I really appreciate that group of people. Not that other folks that are doing other work aren't any less, aren't any more or less important. It's just, I think the blue card folks can be easily forgotten. Yeah, well, that is so true, and I think it's it's true not just for um, you know for blue collar workers, but we kind of tend to stratify ourselves even in other types of workplaces. Now, mm-hmm. I've always been frustrated in a workplace where we say, well, some people over here are the strategists, right? And so the strategists kind mm-hmm. of get paid more, and these people over here, well, you know, they're the people who they're the operations people, and they just get the work done. Well, just get the work done. If you didn't just get the work done there wouldn't be any work right so so yeah. you know but we have this we have this weirdly human way of, of, of stratifying ourselves and thinking well you know this group is better than that group um so i think what you're saying is really it's really important it's, it's important for us to remember and really keep in mind how valuable everybody is well and and ultimately it is mindset too because you could be in a job where you're getting paid seven figures and really hate it because it's it's just so stressful and you could be in a job that you're getting sixty seventy thousand dollars and just enjoying life because you appreciate it and the opposite is true too you could love yeah. your seven figures and hate your fifty sixty thousand dollars but it's all it's all here it's, it's the human side of it all where we have to choose the perspective we're going to have on whatever we're doing and whatever situation we're in and that makes obviously that's going to make the biggest difference in any circumstances and there's books written about this so we know <laughs> the reality right right <laughs> right right so so tell me a little bit about your coaching practice and the, the people you're coaching 
Yeah. So Mike, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory of how the coaching practice okay. started. So I was, when I was 22 years old, I got, I got introduced into the, the world of men's mentoring and I was in high you school. You were 22, you are 22, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was in college at the time. And I remember sitting at a, a desk, just a makeshift desk that I'd made out of plywood and, and a two by fours and talking to my parents on the phone because I was terrified of becoming an adult. I was just mm. terrified of becoming an adult. I was behind in school and stressed by that. And so because of all that, I was 40 pounds overweight, not wanting to finish school because school was a blast, but I knew life was coming. <laughs> and so they tried to comfort me and they said what they said, which I don't remember what it was. But um, after I hung up with them, I still knew that the, I needed to make some shifts. I knew that I needed to change my life and the way that it was going. And fortunately, I got a phone call from a guy named John. And John and I had gone to India together previously. And he called me up and said, hey, there's an opening at this men's mentoring program that I think you'd be a great fit for. And, I, and so I asked him about it and ended up going to the interview and sat on this ratty couch on this blue carpet in this old house that was built in 1887 and spoke to the director and the president of the nonprofit. And they offered me a job. The job was live in this house with up to six guys that are 18 to 25 that are off track in life, maybe some drugs, maybe some alcohol, maybe some sort of other addictions, and they're struggling. And we want you and this other guy that's living with them to help them learn how to live their lives. And I'm going, that's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know where I'm going. You want me to help other people. Exactly. So I was, I took the plunge and I said, yes, because I felt I felt confident about my my experiences in life and and that I had some principles that I could share and and most importantly I could be an encouragement to these guys because that's what they needed. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a year and then ended up being in the program in different positions for for 8 years. But I tell you that because during that whole time I was mentored by the president of the program and he's still working there and he's never been paid, which is amazing. So he mentored me every Tuesday at lunch for an hour to, well, at least an, typically an hour and a half. And he had run 30 different businesses successfully. And he had been a police officer, a highway patrolman, ran an ambulance company, owned uh, franchises, tons and tons of success, which then he poured into me every single meeting that we had when it came to the people side of things. And because we ran an, a, um, pet resort on the property I got to run the pet resort and he poured into me how to run a pet resort with 20 employees and you know 100 dogs a day so I learned how to run a business through someone that had run many many businesses successfully and I got all that training for eight years in a row so fast forward to leaving that program I'm like I want to pass this forward to people that are trying to figure out how to run their business successfully I got into some HR before that for two and a half years and did a little bit of corporate. But once I realized that my real heart was to coach people and work with them directly and help them with their businesses, I offered my resignation and started my business. And um, I am where I am now uh, because, because of that. Wow, that is that is quite a story. And I, I love that, um, you know, that point where, where you are saying, hey, I don't know where I'm going, but I've got <laughs> maybe something that I can offer and being willing to take that risk, but knowing, did you know at the time that the president of the company was of the organization was going to be mentoring you? Did you, was that part of the picture? Uh, yes, I did. I didn't, I didn't know how 
impressive of a resume he had and how much of an impact he would have on my life. I mean, I love that man flat out, you know, but uh-huh. it's like my dad than him when it comes to the men in my life that have made the biggest difference and the ones that I love the most. And without, without either one of them, I am not the man I am today at, at all, not even close. So I, I owe such a debt to both my father and, and to Jack. And it really shows that the impact, doesn't it, of what happens when you care about another person, right? It's uh, because you can't do that type of mentoring as a surface thing, you know, just I'm going to go through some motions here. That That is putting in significant investment of time, uh, you know, an hour and a half in a week, and I'm sure a significant investment in listening as well on both sides of the table. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we can do this as, as leaders and companies. I mean, it's going to be slightly different because it's probably not going to be quite as intimate as a mentoring situation, but just spending time intentionally. I have a client that runs an architecture firm and once a month he has breakfast with his, one of his employees, right? So every month he's having an extended breakfast with them and learning about their lives, about their wants, their needs. And of course, talking about the business as well. And this is changing the company. It's already a very successful company, but he's trying to find that 1%, right? How can we get get the edge, right, in the business? And part of it is people, if, if not almost all of it is people. And so he's having breakfast with them and enjoying those meals and getting that edge when it comes to running his business successfully and helping them to want to own the business in, in the figurative sense of the word. So you have you have coaching clients, and one of the things that's always interesting to hear is how people define the similarities and differences between mentoring and coaching. So, Kyle, what does that mean to you? What do those two terms mean to you? Yeah, mentoring is talking to someone that has done what you want to do, and then they, for the most part, tell you what to do and ask you questions. Coaching is working with someone that is really great at knowing people's behaviors and intentions and and the psychology of people and asking deep, powerful, incisive questions of that business owner or of that employee and drawing out of them the insight and what's needed. So the, the difference is one is more telling, mentoring is much more telling, and coaching is significantly more asking. They both have telling and asking within them, but coaching where I live works far more in the realm of let me pull out of you by knowing the psychology of people, by knowing mindsets, by knowing your habits. Let me ask you powerful questions to draw out what's important to you and what we need to tackle. Because that moves people forward. Because I work with, you know, I'm working with very, very intelligent people that are very, very capable. They're just in their own way. And if I told them what to do, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do that. So that doesn't right. help them. Yeah. Yeah. But if I draw it out of them, then they own it. And so mentoring has a beautiful place, but coaching, I think, is a far better fit for the business world and moving people forward in a permanent way. Right. It's teaching the fish versus here's a fish in right. a certain yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know what we do talk about that that many people need or would benefit from coaching from mentoring specific to their um to the field of expertise of you know the area that they want to be or where they want to go to and also sponsorship 
which is important inside an organization, somebody who is, you know, looking out for you, helping you find opportunities that you might not other see and um, otherwise see it and sharing about you to other people. So all three of those things are important, but they're not always going to be the same person. And in right. fact, it's better if they're not. Right. I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kyle, you, the, you moved from mentoring into coaching. How did that happen? So I worked at a, a mega church that had 100 employees, and I was responsible for the HR for the whole organization. Uh -huh. And the, I think it was the executive pastor said, hey, let's figure out what tool to use to learn people, to learn their personality types. And so we did some research and stumbled onto DISC. And so uh -huh. I studied uh -huh. DISC. Yeah. Got certified in that, got certified in another assessment tool that that is very synergistic with it called Motivators. And so I spent almost a year both studying the topic and then administering the assessments and then delivering results to the or, uh, a report review to the employees. So all 100 of those employees sat with me for an hour or more and we went over their results. So I spent a ton of time having conversations with, with people about their personality and learned so much about people's personality and the patterns of people and all the nuances of it. And then I realized, hey, I could do workshops on this and offer this to other organizations. And so I offered it to a, a local engineering company and somehow some reason they said yes to me and i did it i did it for a, a vp and his team and it was a disaster i'll tell you that story in a minute but it was a disaster <laughs> i but can't I, wait to hear <laughs> yeah but i realized that oh my goodness i could run a business this way because i had already gotten certified as john maxwell coach and i was using those coaching skills in the process of doing these assessments so i gave notice and ended up jumping into the, the first version of my business and and started that first contract, which was like so small. That's probably why you said yes. But anyway, so small and got to do it. <clears throat> so DISC is really the first exposure for me into coaching because I needed to ask these folks a lot of questions to learn more about their personality and draw oh out gosh. of them the insights. So after, after that, um, the first interaction I had with a company was that engineering firm. And I remember reaching out to the VP and he said, yeah, come on in. And he had a team of, I think there was seven of them total. And so I did all the breakdowns of, of the assessments with each of them. And those went great. But some of the people, there were some people in Arizona, some people in Alaska, and some people in the Pacific Northwest. So they were spread across the country. And what was supposed to happen was they were going to have an annual meeting or a quarterly meeting or something, and everybody was going to gather back at the Bellingham office. And then I was going to do a workshop with them on the results and on team development, that kind of thing. Well, it turned out that the Alaska guy couldn't come. And so the Arizona guy wasn't going to come because why would he come? Because Alaska guy's not coming. And then one of the employees that was local was sick. So I show up and there's one dude on the phone that's in Alaska, one dude on the phone that's in Arizona, somebody else in the office down the hall sick, but he doesn't want to be in the room because he doesn't want to get us sick. And then there's two other people, three other people in the room. So oh, I show, great. Yeah. So it's, it, you cannot do a workshop like that. It just doesn't work. But I didn't know, you know, I was super green. And so I tried to present on it. And I remember the first 10 minutes my pits were just sweating. I mean, I was, and I was trying to casually wipe my brow because I was so nervous. 
and nobody was inter interjecting nobody on the phone was saying anything nobody in the room was saying anything and my presentation had gotten messed up a little bit and so I was fumbling with that it was it was ugly then finally the administrative lady chimed in on a question she said something which sparked the rest of the meeting and it went the whole meeting went for an hour and a half but it took a half hour of me floundering to finally get people to engage and I packed up and I was so glad to be done with this thing after after 90 minutes sitting in this boardroom and feeling so inadequate. Walked out of the office, VP and I talked in the parking lot. He said, that was a good job. I think people learned a lot from this. Thanks for thanks for doing it. And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> that was <laughs> terrible. It was awful. It was awful. But I remember getting in my car and driving away and going, you know, that sucked, but that's okay. I, I can get way better at this. And I actually, there was some pieces to it that were that were you know I did a good job and so it got me to stick with it so you you survived that but how did that lead to coaching yeah so <clears throat> how did that lead to coaching that's an interesting question I'm not sure if I have a direct answer for that I think that I began well, you, had, you, had, you had already been certified as a uh through the John Maxwell organization, but were yes. you actively coaching at that time? Yeah, so I had I'd been introduced to John Maxwell while I was in the HR position, <clears throat> got the certification for that and for DISC, and then began to do some free coaching and then began to do some paid coaching. And I, I think it was just a matter of the connections that I had at the, at the business, at the church, I mean, that I started to reach out to people in the business world and then started to coach some people and had had some opportunities to do that and trade some coaching. Um, oh yeah, and then this has been a little while, but I remember I I went to some training in Bellevue, Washington. I don't know if you know where that is or not, but I went to some training in Bellevue, Washington, and my business account to pay for it. It was I think it was like four thousand dollars or so to pay for the for the thing. And my business account had like $4,200 in it. And so I paid for the whole thing and I had $200 in my account. And I'd already started to tell people about the coaching and what I was doing. And the training was fantastic. I still use a ton of the training that I learned from it. But while I was there, I got three clients. And so I knew, because it was make or break for me. If that training was bad, or if I couldn't land any clients in the next weeks after, there was no way. The business was over mm -hmm. and I was going to have to go back to something else. Fortunately, I landed three clients while I was at the program. I got three, I got three phone calls and three clients. That, and I, I, didn't, I had been working them a little bit, but they had said they finally said yes to me. And then I was, that was it. That was the beginning of what then became a successful business. But it was a terrifying time to be like wow i have two hundred dollars <laughs> to make this thing work <laughs> all the way all the way down to the uh to the to the bottom of the account there yes to the bone as they say <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so the the folks that you're working with now um you you work with executives but you work so, with some other people as well um tell us yeah. about that yeah, so I work with business owners, and a lot of them are in the blue collar industries. So construction or uh, reco uh, not recovery, but um, what do you call it? I can't think of the word. What is the word? A remodeling. 
yeah, uh, yeah. Remodeling. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Those those types of things, uh, landscaping, painting, that that world. So I work with business owners in that world that you wouldn't think when you think about that, you're like, well, do they even have money? Yeah, one of my construction businesses that I work with is a $25 million business. So yes, they have yes, they have money. <laughs> and they also have things that they need to yeah. work on that they're struggling with. And so I'm I'm working with both both the white collar world, but also the blue collar world. And what I talk to with the blue collar folks is I say, you guys need to put, get your boots on carpet more than on dirt. Get yourself into an office and do the work on the business and not always in it because they're often putting their tool belt on and their boots on and they're doing the work of building the fence or they're doing the work of painting the house or building the deck or whatever they're doing. And that means they're being taken away from growing the business and building the business instead. Uh, and and this is this is one of the biggest problems of that industry for people that are, you know, three five years into it. They have a lot of revenue, but they're the one that's creating a lot of that revenue personally with the physical work that they're doing in it. Oh, that's so that's really interesting, you know, because one of the things that we talk about a lot in Lean is we say to people who have spent too much time on the carpet that you need to go into the workplace and see <laughs> the actual work that's happening, right? Because we have these folks that, um, and I work in in the um, in the life sciences, and so we have folks that are like, as soon as I get out of the lab and I'm working in the offices, like I never go back in the lab again, but you're actually running labs, right? So you should actually go into your lab and see what's happening in the lab and talk to the people in the lab, but they've, they've gotten really far away from that. But what you're saying is is it's for some folks it's much easier to stay in the workplace than it, the the stuff in the office is harder in a way right because it's unfamiliar because now you're perhaps you're having to deal with the people issues on another level you're having to look forward to the future it's not just about you know did, did I bring the right power tools with me today you know, right so, yeah I mean they're running their business really from the yeah, they're running their business from the truck and having a phone call with this this person that wants them to to build a deck for them or paint their house or whatever it is. And they're great at that. They're great at having that conversation, making the sale while they're driving in their truck to the next project or stopping in the middle of putting some drywall up, picking up the phone and having a conversation with somebody that wants them to go put drywall in their house. And they'll make the sale with dust all over them and then get right back to work. They're really phenomenal at that. But then it's completely relying on them in that regard, instead of finding right. someone else to, to do that work of the drywall. And then they are training them and facilitating those types of things versus being the one that's doing the work and answering the phone. And that's not that's not a good place to be. You can't grow your business in that way. You just can't. And in the case of what you're talking about, the business can grow, but the people are going to get disenfranchised or not feel like they're cared about. Right. And they're not going to produce at the level that they could if the executive person's not present from time to time in the labor section, let's exactly. call it, of the business. Yeah. So it's yeah, because because that you know then it, then when they do come, it's it's dog and pony time, and, and we clean everything right. up, and we right. we put on the clean lab coat, and we don't tell them what's really going on, and they don't know what's happening in the business anymore because because of that separation. It's, it's so interesting. Um, yeah, what yeah. one is abdication, the other one is micromanagement, really yeah. on the extreme ends, and, and it's on not always. Ends. 
that's not always the case, but micromanagement is going to be what happens when, when the guy's got his boots in the dirt all the time. He's going to micromanage and not want to let go of control. Whereas in the other case, it's abdication because they don't ever show up to know what's actually happening. And, you know, you want to sit in the middle of that is the ideal in most cases, depending on your role in the organization. But you want to sit somewhere in the middle so you know what's going on, but don't try to micromanage it. And you don't just let it go and let it do whatever it needs to, because that's dangerous, too, because then you have no pulse on your business. So right. it's a it's a balancing act that's difficult in both cases, uh, but for different reasons, there's a different there's different reasons for why it's a balancing act. What do you find that your clients struggle with the most? Is it do you find that people have you know different people have different problems, or is this something that consistently, as you say, people get in their own way that people that gets in people's own way consistently? Yeah, I I believe there's four pillars of leadership, uh-huh. and the, I describe it like a leadership house. So I'll answer your question, but I'm going to do it kind of roundabout. So. Okay. If you picture a house, just a normal house, self-awareness is the foundation of that leadership house. If you don't have self-awareness, you don't have a foundation. And within that foundation is the rebar, which is your values. If you don't have your values dialed and you don't, then you don't, and you don't have your self-awareness dialed, then you cannot build any sort of leadership on top of that. We need to know ourselves. Then accountability is the nails that holds that leadership house together. Without accountability, the house crumbles doesn't matter how aware you are. If you don't have that accountability, things are going to fall down and people are going to get hurt in the process. Growth is the walls and the roof. So this is, this is where you got to remodel your house and make adjustments to fit the new people that are in your team or the people that are leaving your team or the business is growing. So your leadership has to adjust and you need to modify things around. And then the empowerment is the windows and doors. And so this is where your leadership is your culture and who you are, people get to see that. And they look in on your leadership and they want to be a part of it, or they want to stay in it as they observe you lead really well. They want to be a part of that. And so they knock on that door if they're not in already, and then they come in and start uh, working with you. So those are the four pillars that I believe are the key to great leadership, self-awareness, accountability, growth, and empowerment. But the one, to answer your question, the one that all my clients need, they don't know it often, but the one that they need is accountability. As soon as I bring that word up in a coaching conversation, it's not, it's not poison. It's not, ugh, I don't want to talk about that. It's like, yeah, that's what I need. They all connect no matter how great the business is going or how much of a struggle the business is in. Every single business owner wants that. They want accountability. And what's meant by that is I want to do this thing. I want, I want to start this new service or I want to improve the way we train our people or whatever the, the goal is or whatever the project is, but they have a hard time following through on it or and or getting other people to follow through on it. So for me, I, I offer two different sides of accountability coin. One is the leader needs to be accountable and do their work, do what they say they're going to do and follow through on it. But there's also the skill of helping other people to be accountable. You can't hold them accountable because they have to hold themselves accountable, but helping them to learn the skills of staying accountable is the other side of what all the people I've ever worked with truly needed. And if you can get that skill dialed in, it, it's invaluable what it will do for the person and for the people that they lead. So that's the fundamental across the board, no matter the industry, 
that's what folks end up finding out they need. Interesting. So I see this happen in my coaching practice where people start out like, I, you know, here's my goal that I want to achieve. And, and, you know, they start setting out, um, you know, we, we work a lot with experiments, you know, going to try something, see how something works, learn from that. Um, and after a couple of coaching sessions, they come back and, and you know what, they didn't get done what they said they were going to get done. And what I find is that they're accountable to all kinds of other people, but not mm. to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, do you see that too? Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I have clients right now that they they we've established a goal. They've come up with the actions they're going to take, but then they don't take them, and they're confronted on that. You know, I, I describe it like a check engine light. So I I am riding shotgun with them in their vehicle, and things are going wrong, and the check engine light comes on, and I go, "Hey, this check engine light is on. You might want to do something about that." I can't take the wheel and turn it to take it to the shop. Mm -hmm but I can point it out and find out why they're not pursuing that. What are they afraid of? What's the, what's the fear if you actually address this? What's the fear if you actually do this? And often it's, they don't want to let go of control. They feel like if they follow through on this thing, they're letting go of control, right? If, if I help these people in this way and I, and I don't do all the work myself, for example, then I'm letting go of control and things aren't going to turn out the way that I thought they would. Or I have to take on new responsibility that I'm afraid to take on. And so I don't want to do anything about it. So I'm just not going to, not going to do anything because I don't know what, the, what that's going to mean for me. And I'm going to have to learn something new and I'm comfortable where I am. And since I'm comfortable where I am, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change anything, which actually changes everything in a bad way. <laughs> so yeah. those are some of the reasons I've found people don't act and we got to work through that. And that's all, that's all mindset is is it's not just habits yes habits present that make them do that but it's the mindset behind those habits that will break the bad habits there and so when you talk to people about about that about mindset how does that conversation go yeah often we have to expose the language so people say things to themselves or about other people that puts themselves or the other person in a certain way in their mind. So we start talking about the language that they use, you know? So if they say language like I can't, or I have to, that type of language needs to be addressed. I have one, one client right now. What was the word she used? Um, she used the word approval. She was struggling with the approval of other people. And I said, well, what's, what is your definition of approval? And so she described what that was. We went on, worked on that for a little bit. And then I asked her, well, who, who does it matter? Who do you want to give permission to give you approval? And then she, it just like clicked for her. All of a sudden she was like, oh yeah, I get to control who I allow to approve or not approve of me. Because we do want people in our circle that if they have a negative opinion about us, it matters. And we want to do something about it. And then everybody outside of that circle, if they have a negative opinion, maybe we'll take it in under advisement, but it shouldn't impact us in any significant way. And that clicked for her when she, she said it herself. She made the comment that, oh, these people, they care about me. They, they care about the whole person of me and I can be my full self around them. And that, therefore, those people's approval does matter. So that's a, that's a good example of language and how important it is to shift the mindsets so that people will stay accountable and fall through and not be afraid to step through on yeah. things. I think that that is really um, a great observation, Kyle, because 
language is everything, right? The words and the symbology that we assign or, you know, perhaps it has been assigned in our growing up and we didn't even think about it. You know, we just accepted it um, really does um, frame our mindset. We don't have much more than language to uh, to take it. So right. that's, that's terrific. Yeah. And the more you can own your own language and understand the way you speak, the better. And so for me, with many of my clients, I don't, I just tell them this. I don't try to draw it out of them. I just tell them this. I say, you, you <laughs> there's should. A, there's always that moment in coaching, right? We go, I go, okay, taking off the coach hat. Now I'm just going to tell you something, yeah. right? I'm just yeah. going to tell you this because I know it works and it will work for you if mm -hmm. you do it. And and it's, I tell them to journal that they should write. And they could write in whether, whatever fashion they want, and, and whether it's digital or analog, uh, whether it's, you know, a hundred sentences a day, or if it's two sentences a day, write, because then, you know, you start to learn your own language and begin to interpret what that language means for you and its impact on you. So it doesn't matter what, what position you have in an organization, how many people report to you or how much income you're generating in that business or revenue you're generating. Right, 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 right. Because everything is in your brain and it's swimming around and it's this ugly jumbled mess. But as soon as you put it on paper, things get clarified. And when I write, what I do is I, I write it out. I have three different journals that I do every day. And whatever I put down on, quote, paper, mine are all digital, but whatever I put down on paper, I let go of. They're not mine anymore. They've been released for, for me to look at and think about but I don't hold mm -hmm. on to it anymore. And that's the power of, of journaling or writing things out. You can just let it go and then look at it from a much more sober perspective. Because often I think people are a little bit drunk on all their ideas and stresses, but you put them down and you can, you can start to get sober. <laughs> and I use that metaphor because it's a little harsh, but we do get a little drunk on all the stress that we put on ourselves by not letting things go. So- and yeah, and then for some people, it's it's, um, and I know it, this has happened to me when I've been, you know, in a, in a very stressful situation at work. Those thoughts start swimming around at really difficult times, like two o'clock in the morning, and then you can't sleep, or you know, you're not able to, you know, focus on family time, or you know, whatever the, the things that are important to you, because all those things are swimming around, and they're actually distracting you from real life. Wow, that is a fantastic tip, Kyle. That's that's great. Yeah, if you there's a quote by David Allen. He's the author of uh, Getting Things Done, and it's one of my favorite quotes. He says, uh, "Your brain is for having thoughts, not keeping them." And it's it's wonderful because our brain is a creative masterpiece when it comes to a lot when you let your brain be what it's supposed to be it's a creative masterpiece and the more that you can let go of those thoughts swimming around the easier it will be for people to solve the problems that they're dealing with they could just let those they could their brain their unconscious mind can work on those things because it's free to do that because it's not worried about the it's not concerned about the future or holding on to something in the past it's present and then it can solve the present and do some amazing flipping around and amazing process because it's open and free to do that so wow wow and i i think there's a there's a very interesting connection again there with the with the lean world so we talk a lot about making things visual right so um and uh many lean coaches in their lean practice um uh, in coaching 
get people to, you know, like, let's put this on a storyboard. Let's, let's, you know, what the thing you're working on now, let's make it visual. Let, let's write it down. Um, and that does give you clarity because once you're looking at the words on the paper or the picture that you've drawn that represents the words, now you start to see it in a different way. And, and, and maybe you don't hold on to it as strongly. It is easier to change. You know, you can erase and you can do something different. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really excellent, excellent. Yeah. So you you continue, I believe, to work with young with young men. Is that right? Is that that's kind of where your heart is? Um, so there's a right now the business owners that I'm working with are you know they're the older yeah not, I don't know if older is the right word but you know late mid thirties to mid fifties is is my clients. But eventually, uh, I just actually met with this lady that helps you start nonprofits. She has an organization that she works with that helps you get a nonprofit started and they support you. It's a really, really cool deal. But but we talked for about two hours on Friday. And my goal is to take my experiences in the previous men's mentoring program and open one here in the Pacific Northwest and use, use the connections I have with the Blue Collar World to connect those guys those business owners with the men, the young men that are in the program and have, have the business owners mentor these guys directly uh, and help them get their lives on track and be mentored by a successful business owner and speak into their lives and help them. And obviously in, in the program, they're going to be living in the program. There's a ton of details that would take too long to explain on the show, but that's the, that's the big picture of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm connecting all the work of working with these blue car business owners to this eventual nonprofit and synergizing the, the young men in it with the business owners in the, in my programs. So you re and you're, you're really just connecting those parts of your life. That's yes. That's yes. great. That's great. Well, I'd love to have you back on the show when you get it up and running. So we, oh, can, yeah. we can talk about what you've, what you've learned. Um, I'm always very interested in, you know, so much of this stuff, Kyle, we learn, honestly, as we get older, right? You know, why are we not learning it when we're younger? Mm -hmm. um, you, know, <laughs> you know, you know, go get the grades is what we hear a lot. Um, but we're not taught a lot about, well, you know, how do I, how do I get things done? You know, some people are naturally good at getting things done. And so it's easier for them to get the grades, but that's not true for everyone. And not everyone, you know, gets gets these skills until later in life, if ever. So um, I, I personally think it's terrific. Every, anyone who's reaching out to younger people and, and helping them build, uh, you know, more uh, more skills around around not necessarily being successful, but how to how to have a have a better life. Yeah. Um, so that's terrific. Yeah. That's, that's that's really good. Yeah. Kyle, how do people find you if they want to have more of a conversation with you? Yeah, they can go to blueshirtcoaching.com and you can find me there. But even better would be go to go to my Facebook group. So it's a group called Blue Shirt Group. I couldn't get Blue Shirt uh community. But anyway, it's called Blue Shirt Group. So go to Facebook.com and on and Facebook. Okay. Yeah, and the group is Blue Shirt Group. So it's a growing group right now, and we're getting pretty decent engagement. I post all the podcasts that I do on there, some of my master classes that I'm teaching, and I'm asking people questions in the community. So it's highly engaged. 
because I want to provide as much value as I can through me, yes, but even better through the community of people, because the collective wisdom of all of us is far greater than mine. That's for darn sure. So uh, definitely want to invite people to check that out. There's obviously no cost to it, uh, but it's a way to get to know me and the people that uh, I'm serving. And your listeners can be of service to the, the people in that group, too. They can share their insights as well. That that would be that would be terrific. Yeah. So check out Blue Shirt Group on Facebook um, and uh, uh, Blue Shirt Coaching, and uh, you know have a have a further conversation with Kyle and uh, the people that he works with. Sounds great, Kyle. What is that? The one piece of advice then you have for young people starting out? Yeah, I, I would say this piece of advice is for me for you, yeah. for somebody that's 80 and somebody that's 20 and even my children. And I it love is, it. Go for it. Yeah. It is, yeah. it is learn how to listen, learn how to truly listen to other people and give them the space to be able to listen to them. And I actually have a method I call the wiser way to listen. Uh, but you want to give people the time and space, the respect and the empathy to actually hear what they have to say. And that doesn't require an hour. Sometimes it just is two minutes and sometimes it's 12. In my book, I talk about having these coaching opportunities as leaders. And usually those opportunities are two to 12 minutes. They're not hour long conversations. There's these brief little interruptions where you can take two to 12 minutes to truly listen to somebody and ask them questions and draw out insights and meaning from them. But you have to learn the skill of listening to get there, to be effective as a leader and to empower your team. So read books, practice, screw up when you're listening, you know, but pay attention to the lessons you're learning as you, as you're listening to other people and get better at that skill. It'll progress you forward as a human. And then it'll progress you forward as a leader in, in your business too. Great advice. And, and tell us about your book. Yeah. So I have a book called Sage Leadership and some of what I've talked about today is in there. There's a heck of a lot more in there. I talk about the mindsets and habits of these pillars of a self-aware leader, of an accountable leader, of a growing leader and an empowering leader. I talk about the mindsets and habits behind that, the practical application stories and stuff like that. So it's easily applicable into your business today. You can open any chapter in the book and find a mindset or habit that clicks with you and immediately apply it to your business or your life right now. And it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, it's called Sage Leadership. All right. Thank you. Hey, Kyle Gillette, thank you so much for traveling with me to the Edges of Lean. Yes. Thank you, Bella. I appreciate it. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Kyle Gillette for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. Find Kyle on HTTPS, blueshirtcoaching.com, or on LinkedIn, and listen in to his Blue Shirt Leadership Podcast find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. Subscribe and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn and check out my friends in the lean communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.